We spent a lot of uh, episode number 364 talking about the free agencies, uh, signings, free agent signings, I should say. I've got to make sure I use proper English one of these days, and one of these days I will. Um, but obviously there's been a lot of comings and goings in the National Hockey League as well, and I'd like to uh, get into a couple of those. Now, you know, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know, you know, uh, which guy was just signed from the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds of the of the uh, Ontario Hockey League, and what I don't know, and I quite frankly don't give a damn. But guys that I've heard of, I've got a couple of those to talk about, and Chris is obviously well-versed and, and uh, has got a list of guys that probably did spend some time at Salt Lake City in the uh, Ontario Hockey League that got signed by somebody recently in the National Hockey League is, of course, the uh, free agent frenzy in Gary Bettman's league started a week ago today, last July the 1st, Canada Day here in the great country of Canada. But uh, I guess first and foremost, one of the things that surprised people a lot uh, when all the networks here in Canada were doing their free agent frenzy period in the National Hockey League, where TSN and Sportsnet and all those guys do their their little free agent frenzy hockey shows on Canada Day. And they were talking about the offer sheet that was signed, or uh, the Montreal Canadiens presented an offer sheet to forward Sebastian Aho. Is that right? Aho. 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 I'm going to get these guys right. I mean, one of these days. But Aho of the Carolina Hurricanes was presented with an offer sheet by the Montreal Canadiens five years, $42.27 million over the duration of that contract. Well, it was funny. I was listening to all the talking heads that day briefly, and they all said, well, let's see. They have 15 days to match, and it would be better for all teams involved if they could wait out the 15 days. Well, no, not in Carolina. They waited about a day and a half. They matched that uh, sheet quite quickly. So Sebastian Ajo is going to stay in the tobacco state with the Carolina Hurricanes. Other guys that I know of that have moved over the last seven days, Joe Pavelski signs with the Dallas Stars, three years, 21 million bucks. I got a big kick out of this one. I mean, congratulations and all respect to him. Obviously, he's going down there, uh, you know, with the under the persuasion of Dale Talian, the general manager, and the allure, I guess, of playing for Joel Quenville in South Florida, but Sergei Bobrovsky goes to the Florida Panthers for seven years and $70 million, and he says, I'm going down to win a cup. Well, no shit you are, Sherlock. No, I'm going down to work on my tan and uh, get my golf game up to speed. Of course you're going down to win a Stanley Cup. The last guy that came ever so close was a guy by the name of John Van Beesbrook in 1995, and they lost in the Stanley Cup final to the Colorado Avalanche. What about Matt Duchesne? This was one of the worst-kept secrets in all the National Hockey League as to where this guy was going. He ends up in Music City, Nashville, uh, Tennessee, with the Predators, seven years, $56 million. P.K. Subban, now he didn't sign anywhere. He got traded to the New Jersey Devils. I know this guy personally. I got to meet him once on a golf course in Calgary. It was kind of cool. Jason Spezza, he leaves Dallas, going to his home province of Ontario. Remember, Jason Spezza first originally played for Eugene Melnick and the rest of those limp dicks that call the Ottawa Senators, Ottawa Senators their hometown team. But 
Spezza leaves Dallas for Toronto. What else you got on your list, sir? I know you got a truckload of them. Take it over. Well, I wanted to talk about Sebastian Ajo because I was having a fun uh, texting conversation with our Vancouver Bureau Chief, Sean Dode. And so I said to him about an hour before the offer sheet happened, I said, uh, I, I, I actually, well, he texted me and he said, where are the RFA offer sheets? <laughs> and and for those of you who don't know, until this year, there have there had not been an offer sheet even attempted in the NHL since 2013. That's right. And there hadn't been a successful one since the Edmonton Oilers stole Dustin Penner from the LA Kings mm-hmm. 12 years ago in 2007, starting the whole... Kevin Lowe and Craig McTavish against Brian Burke. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, I like McTavish, but like Kevin Lowe against Brian Burke. I mean, Jesus, like yeah. that's who do you cheer yeah. for there? Yeah. Uh, and so moron <laughs> versus dipshit. Yeah. Well, that's where the famous. I, I thought this was a hilarious when they interviewed Craig McTavish about it, and, and his comment was, "Listening to Brian Burke is about as appealing as drinking from a fire hose." <laughs> uh, good old McTavish. I like McTavish. He, he's great. And congratulations yeah. to Craig McTavish, yeah, by the way. He got a job. He yeah. is the head coach of uh, Lokomotiv Yaroslavl, the team that had the unfortunate plane crash that killed pretty much everyone on the team and uh, a few years in 2011. And so that was sad. But yeah, he's going to be the coach there, which made it interesting because I think it's just a coincidence, but two of the Oilers draft picks this year were from that team, which was interesting. But I think it's just a coincidence. But anyway, Sean asked where the offer sheets are. And I said, offer sheets are mostly for lame GMs to make saber-rattling idle threats. I'm always impressed by actual follow-through. Teams have been hinting at an offer sheet for Sebastian Ajo, but Carolina says they'll match anything, which logically should make a rival offer a ridiculous one. And so then an hour later, I said, and there it is. Habs offer Ajo an offer sheet. And so here's the problem, is that he didn't offer enough overall the oh. only thing that mark bergevin who we famously He's an idiot. made fun of for you know giving the molson's handy jays under the <laughs> conference table <laughs> i think that was actually sean's like line that. originally yeah. Like yeah but anyway so what sean said was uh you know aho should have been offered at least seven years times ten and a half million a year because what a lot of people i think maybe don't know is the carolina hurricanes consider like Don Waddell and owner Tom Dunnan, they consider Sebastian Ajo the best player on the team right now and their best player on the team in the future. And what they said was they said they'd match any any contract offer. And Waddell straight up said, wow, I was surprised that the money wasn't higher. And he said, this is great yeah. because now he's like, I thought I was going to have to spend my whole summer trying to figure out a contract. Then Bergevin goes and makes one for me. Aho signs it. I just match it. Done. I can go golfing all summer. Like he was just like, this is great. I thought he's gonna have to waste so much time on this. You just made my day. The only thing he did well, and, I, and this is what I said to Sean, Bergman didn't go high enough on dollars in the offer sheet. He did maximize the bonuses and upfront cash to make it painful for the cash poor Hurricanes, but he needed higher AAV for any hope of success. So the sheet was for five years times eight point four five four million a year. But like Sean says, and I agree with him, it should have been the full seven at ten and a half. I think that's what you have to do if you want to get a Sebastian Alho, if you're serious. Uh, and if you're not serious, why would you do this? I appreciate maximizing the bonuses. That makes sense. But should have offered more. And this ended up being basically a half-assed effort that was just completely a waste of time, really, for everyone except Don Waddell, who just got saved a ton of time. So, uh, yeah, there was that. Uh, other than that, the really interesting thing for me here in Alberta was, of course, the Oilers and Flames essentially switching recent goalies. So it's going to be weird seeing Talbot 
on the Flames and uh, Mike Smith on the Oilers. I don't know about that deal there. I think Dave Tippett really put in a good word for Mike Smith. They were together in Arizona. And I mean, but Mike Smith is 37. If we get the Mike Smith from the playoffs, that's great. But, you know, for for a team that wants the goalie to not just be a backup veteran presence, but to play 30 to 35 games, I don't yeah. think you want to go older in that situation, right? So that's kind of a weird decision. I, I, I worry about that. That's that's a little funny. Talbot, he had the one good year, but he's not very trustworthy. I'd much rather have Miko Koskinen than Cam Talbot. I think Miko Koskinen is bigger and faster. Somehow he's both compared to Cam Talbot. So I like I like Koskinen a lot. I've always liked Koskinen. I think he's a good balance between today's massive, gigantic men, but with uh, some actual flexibility and some Mm -hmm. athleticism from goalies of previous years when they were a foot shorter than he is. But uh, he's just overpaid. And I mean, that was the death knell for Peter Chiarelli was uh, the last contract he ever signed. And this is two days before he got fired was deciding that Koskinen deserved 4.5 million a year times three. And that's just ridiculous. He hasn't earned that yet, even though, I mean, I think he is a starter and I like him a lot. But the goaltending situation is very shaky. It could be amazing or it could be terrible for the Oilers. Uh, I, but I, I don't know what to say about Cam Talbot, but I have a pretty good idea that guys like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are going to have a pretty good idea oh, yeah. of how to beat Cam Talbot. So I'm not sure that was a great signing by the Flames either. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Oilers also sign another former Flame by the name of Marcus Granlin? Uh, well, they got him from the Canucks. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know if he ever played on the Flames. I, for some reason, I, I just I don't know. I could totally be wrong, but I'm just for some reason I remember seeing that guy. D- d- I don't know. I think you know, like Michael Backlund or something. No, he's still he was free agent. I know, but, but Michael Backlund and Michael Furlan, remember him? He yeah. was involved with the trade with Carolina mm-hmm. last year, but he was a free agent. I don't know if the, anybody the, picked him the, up. The Oilers were looking at him, but they figured he was going to be too expensive, and I he's I don't know. I don't want him, and I'm not interested in him. But Marcus Granlund, yeah, they signed him one year, one point three million. They signed him to be a fourth line center. They want a lot of competition on the fourth line. For playing time, they want a bunch of guys with pace. So Ken Holland made sure to go out and sign a couple of European guys, Gaetan Haas and uh, and the the speedster from Sweden. And they just yeah, they he really wants a bunch of fast guys down there. He doesn't want a bunch of coke machines, right. you know, kind of checking guys and trying to hit guys on the fourth line. He wants a bunch of fast guys that whether they're putting the puck in the net or not, you're making the other team work. And I love that. I think that's a great idea. Marcus Granlund, though, was primarily picked up for his excellent penalty killing ability. So that's where you're, where you're going to see him is on the penalty kill a lot. So, I mean, one year, 1.3 million. No problem with that. What I do like about Ken Holland, he didn't get crazy with anything. He gave out no big contracts. He gave out nothing big per year. And he gave out no contracts worth more uh, for longer term than two years. So very, very uh, smart, sensible performance by Ken Holland. He has said, look, we have two months left. You know, this... He didn't say this, but it's it's not like the NBA or everyone felt like they had to get everything done the first day. He's like, we have two months left. Yeah. You know, I'd like I got the goalie thing checked off. We got some depth guys. We want another like top six forward. They really want. There's going to be a ton of competition for them, even with the Andre Sekera buyout, which I was sad to see, but the contract was a lot. They're going to have a lot of guys coming up from the farm team. Caleb Jones and Ethan Bear and all these young guys are all going to be competing for playing time. There's a bunch of them. William Legison, Joel Pearson. Uh, there's a bunch of them right now. 
and uh, it, there's a lot of competition. The farm team finally looks good. So for the Oilers, looking good. I'm optimistic this year. I think we can make the playoffs. I saw a list the other day. They had the Oilers ranked third worst team in the league. I think that's ridiculous. I think they're going to be good this year, at least good enough to make, to sneak into the playoffs, if nothing else. And if everything clicks for them, they'll be really good. But yeah, uh, we either need Kyler Yamamoto to emerge this year on the right side or to pick up another a really good option. Maybe get rid of Milan Lucic's contract and trade Jesse Pigliarvi and get a top six forward somehow. Has anything, remember we were talking a couple of weeks ago, has anything come from the discussion you and I were talking, I think a couple of weeks ago when we were together and we were talking about, there had been some discussion at least about a trade involving uh, Vancouver, mm. Edmonton and Calgary. I know that... The, Anything come of that? Not yet, but I know the Oilers and the Canucks have definitely talked about one-for-one, one, Erickson for Lucic. But again, if they could ever do the three-way trade, which would be crazy to see an intra-division right. one, I would I would take James Neal over either of those other guys. And all three make the exact same money, $6 million a year. I would take James Neal in a second over Lucic and Louis Erickson. That is for sure. So if we could do that, that would be... Just great. But as of right now, nothing's going on. I, I don't think you're going to see a buyout. If there was going to be a buyout, Ken Holland, you'd think, would trade Lucic for Erickson right. and then buy out Erickson, who's got a year less term. But he's already bought out Sekera. I don't see him doing another buyout because that really drags on like the buyouts. So Sekera was making five and a half million a year. He's now signed in Dallas for one and a half. But he's making five and a half. So by buying him out, they have to spend two and a half because I think it was for two more years it was supposed to be 5.5 times two remaining but now what they do is they have to pay him for the next four years without him playing for them they have to pay two and a half this year and next year and then one and a half the last two years so I mean in the fourth season from now you're still giving him 1.5 million a year that's just annoying to have on the books in the salary cap era you know so you don't want that anymore so you don't want to do I think he I, I have to imagine Holland was limiting himself to one buyout well and and you know and again and and i it. think i think you've answered your own question in regard to or made you know your own statement which was uh, as usual is right on ken holland uh, this isn't his first rodeo and he knows that rebuilding or retooling maybe is a better word of the edmonton oilers isn't going to happen over a 72 hour period he's got all the way till you know early september or mid-september when they report back for training camp so ken holland uh, he'll have these guys in line obviously before they uh, drop the puck for real in early October at the start of this upcoming National Hockey League season. A couple questions I wanted to ask you. We had also talked in a previous episode about how the restricted free agent field or pool was looking, you know, to a lot of people, very attractive when you've got guys like your Hammenegger buddy, uh, Matthew Kachuk in there. You've got Mitch Marner from Toronto. Have has any movement happened there, or is it just it's just too restrictive these days with these RFAs to for any real sub, substantial movement? Yeah, there's been so much uncertainty with the salary cap, and there just isn't as much room as there is in the NBA or yeah. the NFL. And there's no, you know, it's a hard cap. It's not right. like the luxury tax in baseball, which is a joke, which is what they need, frankly, is a hard cap in baseball. But for hockey, it's just really restrictive. There's a lot of bad contracts out there. The buyout. Uh, system I think should be changed I don't think when you you know you try to save three million on a guy I, I don't like that you know you buy him out and then you know fourth year from now you're still paying for him even if it's small I don't 
I, I, I mean, I know you, you don't want to uh, allow people to sign recklessly and then have no consequences, but the way it is right now, there's a lot of issues right now, and it is really suffocating a lot of the GMs with what they're able to do. There hasn't been a lot of interesting stuff. The first day there was fun right. signings, like, yeah, Matt Duchesne and Bobrovsky and Panarin and all this stuff happens and whatever, and everyone wants to be part of the flashiness and all that. But no, it wasn't really... I didn't find it overly exciting, and I don't know that teams revolutionize their rosters too much. I think the Rangers are finishing off a really nice rebuild, very fast, very efficient. You know, be honest, tell the fans, require a bunch of draft picks, now get back to all of a sudden. They still have so much. They still the, you know, top three revenue by far uh, in the league with Toronto and Montreal. Now let's off, you know, a couple of years rebuilding, got a ton of picks. Let's just sign Panarin and just let's just kick ass again. Why not? So uh, I, I think that the Rangers are, are looking good, but overall it wasn't that exciting for me. Um, usually, and I have to admit, I still find myself having to remind myself that Lou Lamarillo is not the general manager anymore of the New Jersey Devils. Since he left New Jersey, he's gone on to, to, to Toronto, and now he's back in what they call the tri-state area as the general manager of the New York Islanders. And with what the Islanders did last year with Coach Trotz. Um, probably there are a few people that thought maybe that Lou Lamarillo may have won the uh, executive of the year in the National Hockey League, but he did not. But let me tell you something. I don't know who the general manager is right now currently of the New Jersey Devils, but you get Jack Hughes at number one. Taylor Hall obviously is still there doing a great job. You bring in P.K. Subban on a trade, big trade with the with the uh, Nashville Predators, I think on paper, and everybody has got a crystal ball in front of them and they think they're a genius and they know what they're talking about at this time of the season as we sit here in the summertime. But right off the top of your head, you got to think that the New Jersey Devils should be an improved team in 2019-2020. I'm not going to say they're going to the playoffs, but they've at least made some additions and I think some additions that are good for the longevity of this hockey team. Yeah, I mean, Jack Hughes, if he's as advertised, Taylor Hall, P.K. Subban, should be a lot of, that's a lot of offense, yeah. though. I mean, the, the foundation of the New Jersey Devils when they were just the most solid team ever right. was, I mean, Scott Stevens, Scott Niedermeyer, and Martin Brodeur. I mean, that's just, just yeah. that's, that's probably the greatest three-person defensive unit in the history of hockey. I don't know what, how you'd compete with that. Like ever, I mean, maybe some old Montreal teams, boy, maybe Boston. I mean, Bobby Orr was so awesome just at offensively that inherently he's good at defense because they never had the puck the other team. But as a just a rock solid defensive unit that could still move the puck up ice, Niedermeyer could still score and play make. Stevens would kill you if you came over the blue line. Brodeur, like even without a great defense, Brodeur was going to stop you. So that i mean that's that might that's what might be missing i actually like that they got rid of keith kincaid as as a goalie which i don't like i believe montreal signed him so i like that but uh, it's a lot of offense i mean pk suban is one of those guys he's exciting he's a cool guy great to have in the community probably fun to have in the locker room but when he touches the puck you think wow he's either going end to end or he's just going to give it to them and they're good. the other team's going to score <laughs> like i mean i get I, i'm not even you know invested in the teams he's played for and I get nervous when he touches the puck every time. I mm -hmm. And I think if he was on my team, 
yeah, he'd lead to some exciting moments, but man, I'm terrified when he touches the puck. I mean, he is he's a defensive liability, I think, and I don't think he's this uh, number one defenseman that people consider him to be. I think he's more of like a number four type of a thing, and and uh, yeah, he's just he's scary there. So I don't know if they have the defense because they did trade Adam Larson, who was rock solid for them, yeah. to the Oilers. That's I mean, <laughs> had to give up Taylor Hall for it, which was an overpay, of course, but. They've missed that, and I don't know if they have the defense to go with it. I think at this point, they really need to focus on defense and goaltending because, yeah, with Subban and Jack Hughes and Taylor Hall, that's that's pretty exciting, I think. That's great, but uh, I don't know if they're a complete team yet. As we broadcast here on the um, 8th of July, it puts it somewhere around 59 or 60 days until the opening of the 2019 2020 NFL season of course this year usually it's the super the defending Super Bowl champion but this year because it's the 100th year of the National Football League and I'm kind of wondering who's doing the math at the NFL headquarters in uh, New York New York it's probably Jane Goodell's husband and you know he only deals in millions but um, I'm trying to figure out because the Packers celebrated 100 last year the Bears are saying they're celebrating 100 this year I don't care. Bears and Packers, 59 or 60 days from tonight on Thursday Night Football. But um, I have a couple of National Football League stories that I'm interested to get Chris's uh, take on. And uh, the first one just bothers me because, well, I think that we can officially put this guy into the idiot category. First of all, for the way he looks. (laughs) Second of all, um, you know, his father was so invested and with such a controlling interest and such a powerful I mean he was all everything in regard to the Oakland slash Los Angeles slash Las Vegas slash Oakland slash Santa Rosa slash Tijuana City all the different places that the Raiders have called home over the years and I'm obviously talking about Hall of Famer Al Davis but his son overtook or took over I should say is a better word took over the team when Al died a couple years ago. But Mark uh, Mark Davis said something that really surprised me earlier this morning when he says that and I quote Davis thinks let me here's where we go. Davis thinks and I quote that Hall of Famers families should get rings as well as the inductees. What and what, quote what family members? Well, like your mama and your daddy, if there's one around, and your kids and your grandkids, anybody that's involved. Let's say you're going into the Hall of Fame. You're Chris Fluke, star defensive tackle of the New England Patriots, and you're going in, and they think, according to Mark Davis, he thinks Martina should get a ring, and Martina's family should get a ring, and your family should get a ring. I think, you know what? We're going a little preposterous here. I think that the ring should go to the person that's going into the Hall of Fame not the family members. I mean, the family members had a part in it, obviously. But uh, I think let's keep it as special as it is. Let's just keep it with the inductees. They get their ring, they get the yellow jacket, and they get forever loved by their fans. But I don't think Grandma and Grandpa and Uncle Joe and Cousin Steve and drunken and drunken Uncle Bill should get a ring if... Some guy makes it in the Hall of Fame. It should be exclusive to the guys that are getting into the into the Hall. This is just a no-brainer, and this is probably 
because Mark Davis has no brain, but this might be the dumbest opinion I've ever heard in pro sports. What like what could be done? How could you possibly get dumber? You want to give people rings who didn't do anything, right? I don't I don't see this logically. How could something be dumber than this? Right, and and it takes away if you're given, you know, drunken Uncle Steve a ring because he is related somehow to the newest inductee into the Football Hall of Fame. Why does Steve, drunken Uncle Steve, deserve a ring? It takes away. It takes away. The accomplishment, it takes away from everything, in my opinion. If everybody in the damn Canton, Ohio Stadium is sitting there with a ring on, that takes away the specialty of getting in and being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And again, drunken Uncle Steve and mattress back uh, Aunt Mary don't deserve a Hall of Fame ring. <laughs> That's like mattress back Aunt Mary. That's great. Uh, but okay, like, yeah, let's say... My fictitious brother gets into the yeah. Hall of Fame. Like, do you know how stupid it would look? So I'm walking around with a Hall of Fame right. ring. People are like, what's that? Like, oh, it's my Hall NFL Hall of Fame ring. You were in the NFL. No, no, my brother was. Yeah. So I get one. Do you like people look at you like you're stupid? Like, I mean, that's it's unbelievably dumb. I think that's the dumbest opinion I've ever heard. So go fuck yourself, Mark Davis, for sure. I, I mean, well, just for having that haircut, I want you to fuck yourself. But <laughs> Life has already Holy, taken a strip yeah, out of just, him. Like, it makes me want to barf looking at that piece of shit, honestly. <laughs> it really does. But that is uh, so dumb. It actually reminds me of Bill Burr, the great comedian who, I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah. seen Bill Burr, yeah. but yeah. you love him. Yeah, he's he's great. But he was making fun of Hillary Clinton. And he said, like, so you married the president, so now you're a senator? Like, you just... <laughs> You just picked it up because you were around it. That like it's, you know, he's like he's like that's if Giselle married to Tom Brady. That's like if Giselle was the quarterback of the Rams. Right. You know he's like you know oh I just got in there and I was you know I don't and suddenly I was just lacing it and I don't know you know I'm leading receivers and it was just like it's so stupid. It's like I don't where is this? This is like hundreds of years old. This whole fetish with family and bloodlines and. And, you know, it's a guy like probably like James Dolan or whatever, like, oh, your dad was rich or something. So you deserve to run a team and be like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just this whole family oligarchy fetish, whatever it is, the monarchy, all this dumb shit. Like, oh, like you guys are inbred. So you get to rule things like it doesn't make <laughs> it's so dumb. And if there's someone who looks inbred, that's Mark Davis yeah. for, <laughs> for sure. But, I mean, this is literally the dumbest opinion. I I don't like to speak in superlatives, carelessly especially. This, I'm confident, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in sports. Before we get out of here on this uh, 365th episode of Unscripted, um, I do have to bring this up because I'd be interested to see who you would consider uh, growing up, who your sports hero was or maybe is to this day. Recently, a... Uh, um, they conducted a study of current, a number of current NFL players. And the question that they were asked was, who was there, or in that regard, if you're talking to the NFL player, obviously, who is, is or was your sports hero while growing up? They asked Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. He says his was Michael Jordan. Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills named Brett Favre was his hero until he signed with the Vikings, and I just became a huge Josh Allen fan with that comment. Antonio Brown, now the Oakland-slash-Las Vegas Raiders, says Deion Sanders was his. 
They also included coaches in this little survey. Somebody asked new Broncos coach Vic Fangio who his uh, sports hero was when he was growing up. He must have grown up in the great city of Philadelphia because his hero was Mike Schmidt, who was then, of course, playing third base for the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team when uh, Fangio thought Mike Schmidt or felt that Mike Schmidt was his sports hero. Growing up, who was your sports hero? Sure. Well, when I was eight years and younger, it was Wayne Gretzky when he was playing for the Oilers. And that's a devastating thing for an eight-year-old kid. You have Wayne Gretzky winning all those cups and they trade, sell him, which would never happen today. I don't think uh, that 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 sale would have been vetoed. Uh, And think about it. Think about how far sports has come now. The main deal, Pocklington did that. The reason he did that deal was because he wanted the the cash. And the cash was $15 million. You know, like today, if you had Wayne Gretzky in his prime and you traded him and you wanted cash, do you know what fucking cash you would get? A lot more than $15 million. <laughs> Holy crap. Anyway, well, but Wayne Gretzky at the time was making less than a million dollars a right. year. Yeah. I mean, because that was a big salary. I think he had the first, did he have the first million dollar contract per year? I think I he did. I believe he's up there for sure. I think he did. But uh, no, the real answer though, growing up, my sports hero was Brett the Hitman Hart. Really? Absolutely, it was. And yeah, really was. I mean, wrestling was my favorite thing to watch growing up. I liked watching the Oilers. I wasn't into NFL yet. I enjoyed the Rough Riders, but more just kind of, uh, you know, you come home from boating at the lake and you see what they're doing, or my grandpa's listening to the game on the radio even. uh, And and maybe you watch the, well, they weren't in the Great Cup very much, but you might watch later in the year too and hope for the best. But, uh, you know, was never that into baseball or basketball. Uh, you know, watch the Jays when they were in the back-to-back World Series. But for the most part, I was uh, prime, you know, other than Oilers and some Riders, I I was uh, a wrestling fan, was my number one sport to watch. And that's why I know probably more about wrestling than any other sports even to this day. And uh, so for me, I remember I used to, in, in junior high, I put Bret Hart rules on my pencil case. <laughs> and then, of course, this other asshole put Shawn Michaels rules on the other side of my pencil case. He stole it and like wrote that on there. But it made me feel good because he spelled rules wrong. He put rulels. Like, oh, nice. So, so it mean, meant he's an idiot. And, and I know this guy is just total white trash nowadays. So that's pretty great. But uh, Bret Hart was certainly my sports hero growing up no question uh happy birthday just uh last week on july 2nd to brett hitman hart july 2nd 1957 so that puts him at 62 years old Mm -hmm. and uh you know still doing well of course he was you know attacked by the fan recently at the wwe hall of fame speech event and uh he came out and unveiled the new AEW championship for the new professional wrestling league that i am watching shod khan's league Mm -hmm. uh, tony khan's league and uh, so Bret Hart came out there and was the first to show the new title belt. So um, you can definitely see him slowing down. He's uh, he's he's definitely uh, having a harder time getting around. But he, you know, if you remember what if you ever saw what Stu Hart looked like at the, at the end, like completely bent over, you know, and just yeah. had a real tough time. So hopefully Bret's not going that way. But uh, you know, he's 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 okay for what he's been through. I mean. You know, just I think about watching even in 1997 at the end of his WWF run, uh, he had the five person Hart Foundation, him, Jin the Anvil, British Bulldog, Owen Hart and Brian Pillment. And he's the only one still alive. So, I mean, the fact that he can walk around OK is uh, better than the other four. So, uh, you know, yeah, no question, though, my sports hero growing up was Bret the Hitman Hart. Well, just so you know, um, I did actually see Bret Hart at the uh, local chapters up in West Hills about six months ago. That's a bookstore. And, uh, well, you know chapters. 
obviously. Um, but um, you know what? You're right. It's 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 harder to watch them even move these days. But still, hello, how are you? Still approachable. Oh yeah. Still an unbelievably nice guy. And you know what? There's a lot of negativity in this city right now, but uh, he is still a very positive influence. And uh, it's really nice to be able to say that he is a Calgarian. Um, he, he does a lot for this community, does a lot for re- the game of wrestling still, and yet still takes time. People were just could recognize him right away, even though he's gray now and the whole thing. But um, he took time and said hi to everybody. People were throwing, you know, pieces of paper in front of him, and he signed every one of them. So I have great respect for uh, Brett the Hit, Brett the Hitman Hart, for damn sure. Can I just say too, like it's an interesting thing with Brett, and I think more athletes can learn from this because the fact that he's very humble, and you know, he was raised in a house of twelve kids, and you know, all that, uh, and he he went through a lot to get where he is and was. But don't mistake that for thinking he's. You know, he has no ego or anything. Brett the Hitman Hart, and I don't, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I, I'm saying it actually just the opposite as a way that uh, other athletes can maybe learn from this or something. But Brett the Hitman Hart has a gigantic ego. Mm-hmm. He really does. Like, he is, he re, and he took himself seriously. And he took himself as seriously as anyone in wrestling in uh, anything close to the modern era. I mean, if you go back further when, like, you couldn't admit it wasn't real or anything, like, those guys, yeah. some of those guys, um, you know, guys like, who was it? It was it, uh, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, uh, Schultz was it, um, doctor, whatever Schultz. He, uh, like when he'd like beat up a reporter who said it wasn't real or whatever, you know, like literally those guys would, yeah. would punch you in the face if you even, and a lot of them were legit tough guys. You didn't fuck with those guys, but for the, for the more modern era guys like Bret Hart, uh, you know, took everything very, very seriously and had a, a large ego about, uh, and justifiably so. He really technically was the best of his era and just excellent at what he did. And he was the excellence of execution, as Gorilla Monsoon famously called him. And um, But at the same time, he I think he was always willing to sign autographs and be approachable and, and meet with his fans and give them the time of day mm-hmm. and, and legitimately be nice to them. And I think he's a nice guy. And I think that's something that's lost. Most people think you either have to be just a nice guy all the time and and not think that much of yourself or get all egotistical about yourself. Or you have to be just this complete prima donna asshole. But there is a middle ground. You can be very proud of your accomplishment, take yourself very seriously and your sport very seriously, even if it is professional wrestling, but still be nice to people. Just because you have a big ego or you think or know you're the best doesn't mean you can't be nice to people and respect your fans. And I think Bret Hart is a great example of how you can really walk the line perfectly. Really quick, I just have to mention uh, my hero, sports hero, as a kid growing up, was a kid that um, obviously everybody knows who he is. It's not a secret. Um, but Michael Jordan is one year older than I am, and I was in the grade. I was in grade nine when Michael Jordan was didn't make his tenth grade high school basketball team, and then you see him three years later hit the shot. As a freshman, a true freshman at North Carolina, you see him hit the shot to beat Georgetown in the 1982 NCAA basketball, the championship game. Jordan hits it as a as a fr- uh, freshman at North Carolina. Here's a guy, obviously, folks, that, uh, again, did not make his 
sophomore in, in the States. That's grade 10 year. He did not make his grade 10 year basketball team. Obviously, he made it in grade 11 and 12, went on to start North Carolina, and the rest is history. But, you know, a lot of these guys are thought of as all other world. I mean, take a look at it this way. Tiger Woods made his first television appearance at the age of three on the Mike Douglas show, and he made a little putt. I've seen that. Um, he became an instant sensation even then. Michael Jordan obviously had to fail before he went on to accomplish great things. And all it did was make Michael Jordan hungrier for success. And I think that's why people always talk about all the points and all the great dunks and everything else he's done, and, and rightfully so. But people also forget that Michael was at least five or a five or six-time uh, member of the first team, all-defensive team in the NBA. And I think that's what kind of differentiates him from other players and that's why I think in my mind he was my sports hero real quick before we get out of here on this 365th um, episode of unscripted with Mike and Chris we do need to send out uh, some quick uh, a note of I guess relief if nothing else I enjoy this guy very much not for what he does in the studio but I interviewed him when he was a senior at the University of Arizona. He was an All-American middle linebacker for the University of Arizona Wildcats. He went on to a successful career with the New England Patriots as a linebacker, winning a couple of uh, Super Bowl championships. I'm talking about Teddy Bruschi of now of ESPN. He is doing much better after a stroke he suffered on Friday of last week, and this I didn't even know. But this was the second time that he has had a stroke. He had a stroke when he was a member of the New England Patriots, and obviously that probably led up or sped up his timetable a little bit in regard to finding a second career, which he has successfully done, I think, at ESPN as part of their NFL coverage. But I just wanted to send out a quick note of, uh, well, he's not dying, we're happy to report. Uh, he's doing much better, but I just hope that he continues to improve from his hospital bed uh, Teddy Bruschi of ESPN doing much better after a stroke he suffered on Friday of last week. And uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to him. Yeah, you know, all the best. He he recognized the warning signs right away, as did his wife. He said they were talking. And uh, you would think that everybody knows it now. But if you see somebody who, is, you know, one side of their face starts drooping or yeah. one arm isn't working, right. something that's kind of limited to half of your body, then uh, certainly that's a sign of a stroke. And you want to uh, do something right away. I think... Uh, I don't know if aspirin can help with that. I think it can help with a heart attack, but I don't think it can help with a stroke. But you want to call, uh, you know, call nine one one immediately if someone you know is is having that happen to them. Certainly, and uh, very very important. Uh, if you if they can't start if they can't do like basic math questions or anything like that, right. like st stuff like that. So uh, always always call right away. And also, real quick to your uh, to your sports hero, uh, my wife Judy went to high school here in Calgary, Ernest Manning High School, with Deanna Hart. Uh, Diana. With Diana Hart, excuse me, but that was Diana Hart. She went to high school with Diana Hart. So all of my wife's family, is is uh, she's met Bret Hart many a times, uh, but a great family. Um, unbelievable, you know, how much they were in the spotlight and uh, all turned out to be great individuals and really all of them have accomplished a lot in life and that goes back to Stu Hart and Mrs. Hart I wish I knew her name but uh, Helen Helen thank you um, to the Hart family congratulations on a great job of raising all your children first and foremost 
We've got a run on this 365th episode of Unscripted. As always, we thank you and hope that you continue to do so. Freeform Friday is next here on Unscripted. Having said all that, for the executive producer of Unscripted, Mr. Chris Fluke, I'm Mike Jansen. Until next time.